You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Evan Mandry, who is a professor at John Jay College, which is part of the City University of New York. And he's also the author of a number of books, one called Wild Justice. Well, I guess more than just these two books, but the most recent book is called Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. Welcome, Evan. Thanks so much for having me. Now, of course, you're sitting at CUNY, which, you know, CUNY, I think, is has a reputation. It's pretty famous because it was one of these escalators that you talk about, right, back in the, I guess it was the early 20th century. I mean, there's so many people that went through CUNY, came from immigrant or recent immigrant backgrounds and who went up becoming super famous. And I think part of what you're saying in the book is that, you know, those kind of stories are less common to some degree, perhaps than they were in the past. And I think the way in which you lay out the story in Poison Ivy is that you say, American elite universities say that they are merely a reflection of the inequality that we see in America. And you say, perhaps it's really these universities that are contributing to and perhaps creating a lot of the inequality that we see in America. And you support this with quite a bit of data. You reference some of the work of Raj Chetty and others. And I guess the big question that I always have when I read all about all this data is, you know, how much of this is correlation and how much of this is causation? And I think that's the real big question that we want to dig into. But maybe we can just start off by looking at this data, right? These universities claim to be involved in this project of supporting meritocracy and supporting opportunity and access, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence to support that. So let's talk about the evidence. What do you see in, in the data? And again, you're talking, I think, primarily about the elite universities. But of course, that conversation is going to trickle on down to places like CUNY. Well, the first thought I had when uh, you were asking your question is, what's changed about CUNY? Um, my parents are both CUNY graduates. And um, I mean, you're not going to have data from the 1940s, but I think you have lots of anecdotal evidence. So when you talk about them being elevators, I try to distinguish in the book between top floor mobility and other types of mobility. So the CUNY of today is a massive promoter of upward mobility. And, you know, in, in the Chetty and Friedman kind of, you could slice the data however you want. Their key metric is kind of bottom quintile to top quintile. And if you look at bottom two quintiles to top two quintiles, CUNY kind of dwarfs every other college in terms of success. Now, CUNY does very, very little top floor mobility in terms of like promotion to the you know, top 1% or top 0.1%. And I think that was different. Um, you know, I think when they produced Jonas Salks, in my sense from, you know, I've t- my parents both went to Brooklyn College. And my dad started at City College. And, you know, that, that changed the variety of dynamics there, right? One is that CUNY is massively underfunded and open admissions changes the equation some. So, I mean, that's part of why I think it's so important to talk about, you know, elite colleges or the wealthiest colleges because they're disproportionate promoters of 
you know, access to like management consulting and investment banking and professions that really shape the national agenda. So CUNY is still continuing to serve as this escalator. But I mean, is it that we have fewer of these escalators? I mean, I think the main point of the book is that the people who go to these top universities are coming from the elite, coming from the wealthy. And they come in as elite and wealthy and they leave as elite and wealthy. And so they're just cycling the upper echelons of society and they're not doing a great job of sucking in these people. I mean, does this mean if these elite universities aren't doing it and we don't have a whole lot of coonies out there, does that mean that the university system as a whole is failing in its stated mission to provide opportunity for people with potential? So I think we're going to have to differentiate between or among the types of opportunities that we're talking about. So public colleges promote lots of opportunity, right? They promote access to a job and to a middle or upper middle class life. They promote access to affluence for very, very few people. So we're going to have to like differentiate between the types of opportunity that we're talking about. I mean, no one as I've ever taught has landed a job at Goldman Sachs. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. I mean, they might work in human resources there, but that would be about it. So why, I mean, if I'm a recruiter, so I mean, I mean we're skipping a couple steps here, but if I'm a recruiter for Goldman Sachs, if I'm a recruiter for McKinsey, then I'm a consumer of these students coming out of these universities. So, you know, why would I, as a recruiter, be interested in anyone but the best, right? Why would I be interested only in, say, the elite and the wealthy? Right? Why wouldn't I say, hey, you universities are not doing a good job of scouring the landscape and finding these people who will turn out to be fantastic employees for me, right? Why is there not that pressure from the, these elite recruiters? Sorry, your question is like, why don't Goldman pressure the universities to kind of recruit a, a more diverse or better set of students? Yeah, because look, I mean, the key fact that you point to is that a place like Harvard takes in more students from the top 1% than it does from the bottom 50%, right? And it's hard to believe if we think that they should be accepting the people with the most aptitude. It's hard ex ante to think that the number of people who have high levels of aptitude is going to be greater in the top 1% than the bottom 50%. So why aren't these universities doing a better job of going out and finding these people? I talked to a university president in one of my podcasts who was complaining. He said, I really want to find more people right, from these lower income groups. I really want to go get them and bring them in. And yet you'd think if you really wanted it, you know, you'd do it. So that, that seems to be the, one of the fundamental problems that you point to is that th these universities say that they want to bring in high quality, low income people, but they're not doing it. Well, well, that's for sure. I mean, I, I just a few different reactions to things that you said. I mean, one is like in the case of a management consulting firm, like are they actually seeking the best people or are they seeking the best credentialed people? So, I mean, I think in McKinsey's case, a lot of what they're selling is the perception that they've recruited the best people. So I don't necessarily know that they care so much whether they're getting the precise, most competent set of students or whether they're just getting a lot of Wharton grads and Harvard and Yale graduates and they can say, look, we have people with these sterling degrees. And people who are outside of the academy aren't going to 
ask the question that you and I might ask, which is, hey, is the Academy really filtering out the best of the best? You know, with respect to why colleges um, don't do better, I mean, you know, I, uh, I'm very um, cynical about this at this point. I, I always say to people, I, I didn't really start out as a zealot when I started down this path. I was a skeptic, but I wasn't a zealot. There are very simple steps that colleges could take to socioeconomically diversify their class. And so they're clearly not taking them because it doesn't serve their institutional interests. So what are those institutional interests? I mean, I, I was shocked. There was a quote in the book where I think it was Justice Scalia was at George Washington Law School. I think it was George Washington was an American. I forget it was. Yeah, it's, it, you can't make a, a sow's ear out of a silk purse. Right. Yeah. And so he's basically saying, if you don't have the, the brand of, you know, Harvard or Yale or Stanford, then I'm not even interested in interviewing you because he said that, you know, the best people come from the best places. So, I mean, that belief seems to be pervasive, but it doesn't seem to necessarily, I mean, there's no, I don't think he did any AB testing. Did he go and, and recruit people from these other schools and actually compare their work product with the folks who came from the best, highest ranking schools? I mean, for sure he didn't. I mean, he's telling that story, the preface to that story, it's at American University's law school and um, a student named Christina Strutt asks him basically what she has to do to, you know, have an outstanding career and get a Supreme Court law, law clerkship. And he's like, I'm, you know, it's not going to happen. But what's incredible is the start of his answer is the best clerk he ever had. And it's a clerk. So he succeeded Lewis Powell. So that it was a clerk who was carried over from Powell, who had gone to, you know, God forbid, Ohio State Law School. And he's like, well, I never would have recruited there. But he acknowledges that that was the best law clerk he ever had. And there's so many pathways to seeing that, you know, you wouldn't have to have gone to Harvard or Yale to be an outstanding law clerk. I don't know if you've ever heard Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, The Tortoise and the Hare. You know, it's about the skill set that law schools are selecting for through the LSAT, which is really speed of analysis. And of course, you know, being a law clerk has nothing to do with speed, right? You're a super long thinker. Um, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a correlation with performance on, and he talks about this in the podcast, to like issue spotter exams. But when you move to like take-home exams, there's no correlation whatsoever between the LSAT. But, you know, colleges of elite colleges have done a great job of selling the perception that they've identified the best and the brightest. And I, I think that is a lot of, you know, what the brand is. It's very damaging because I, I always hasten to say that meritocracy is a double-edged sword. If you say Harvard and Yale and Princeton students are the best and the brightest, you mean everybody else is the worst and the dumbest. Well, I mean, the fundamental point is that the number of admission spots into these top universities is finite, right? And so everybody is fighting to get into these top universities. It's a knockdown, drag out battle. Parents are with their kids from almost birth are doing everything they can, including their housing location choice, the, you know, cultivation of various skills, attributes, athletics, and so forth. Everybody's fighting to get into these top universities because it's believed that these top universities will provide 
value to the students. So I guess the question I have is, do we know that for a fact? Because it could be that these are just status goods, right? Like, you know, there's a limited number of Porsches, limited number of Lamborghinis, and everybody is fighting for, you know, those limited supply of Lamborghinis and they're working their ass off to make the money to buy the Lamborghinis. Do we know for a fact that if you take the same exact kid and you stick them in, in Harvard versus taking that same exact kid and sticking them in Cooney, that they are going to wind up, you know, happier, healthier, wealthier, and wiser, you know, at the end of the day, if they get into Harvard. I mean, it seems no one's ever done like a, you know, an RCT on this. It would be great if we could, like, you know, if we had a big grant where we could just randomly assign people of similar aptitude and similar backgrounds into these different institutions. Well, my guess what that data would show, right? We have lots of economic data. Um, I mean, we don't have any randomized trials, but we have lots of data that I think we can draw a pretty strong inference from. I mean, with respect to happier and healthier, no evidence whatsoever, right? And actually, um, you know, I say this to my students all the time. I mean, I found it very difficult when I went to college. I had never met a rich person in my life. It was very hard when I kind of rose above my class standing. And I think the students that I teach at CUNY are much happier kind of being around people who have overcome similar obstacles. And selfishly, I prefer teaching them. They're not entitled. They work their butts off. And I meet a dozen people a year who, you know, I kind of become invested in their success for life. Now, from an economic standpoint, there is lots of evidence to suggest that their economic prospects are going to be different. We have lots of evidence that um, when poor students and students of color get you know, Ivy League degrees that they economically basically perform the same as their peers. There's no reason we would think otherwise. You know, a couple of other thoughts. One, when you said like, it's a, you know, it's a a luxury good with a fixed supply. Well, in fact, that's partially a choice by these institutions. Um, They've limited supply. They have near infinite resources. So there's something, there's not certainly nothing that would prevent Harvard or Yale from Yale's done a tiny bit, but from expanding and God forbid they could build a second campus in Detroit or something like that and transform the community. So that's a choice. And then, you know, last thing I'll say on this, those degrees are near perfect insurance policies against significant downward mobility. So, you know, everything you've identified, I discussed this at length in the book, um, all of the steps that you know, affluent white parents go through to try to land one of these degrees for their kids, I think to some extent are rational. Please ask me about this. I mean, I I think the causal chain is reversed a lot more than these colleges will admit. I mean, they're going to say, you know, we look the way we do because America looks the way it does. But I think to some extent, America looks the way it does in part because these colleges look the way that they do. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the social scientists would say, is this selection or is this treatment? Right. Because if, in fact, you know, getting admission into one of these colleges does enhance your earning potential, it's not clear why. It's not because you're learning necessarily. I mean, again, this is a question. I mean, it's not because you're learning more practical skill than you would at, say, a CUNY. It's not because you're, you know, learning how to work in teams, you know, better than you would at CUNY. It's not because you're, you're getting more content. Is it just a, a signal? And if it is a signal, you know, what, what is it a signal of? Yeah, I think of it the same way, uh, you know, selection or treatment. I always talk about it as a beauty pageant. I mean, I, I think the main thing that happens is you've gotten this certification. You've won this admissions contest. Now, 
you know, we have scant data on the economic value, I mean, on the learning value added by colleges and universities. I'm going to give you a pretty strong <laughs> hunch about what that data would show if it existed. You know, if I'm letting in, let's imagine we had some exit test. It could be the LSAT or the MCAT or something like that. Well, if I let in a bunch of people who have, you know, 50th percentile scores on average, they're going to come out having 50th percentile scores on average on their exit exams. And Harvard and Yale and Stanford are letting in people who have 98th and 99th percentile scores. And no surprise, you know, that's what they get on the other end. I mean, the reason my intuition, actually, I spoke at Stanford recently. The professor who hosted me was like, he was really challenging me. He's like, so you're saying that what you do at CUNY is as good as what we do at Stanford? And I was like, well, you understand that the implication of what you're saying is that you're a better professor than I am. But, you know, I've taught at both places. I was a teaching fellow for three years when I was there. I was a student there. I've taught here now forever. I mean, Harvard doesn't even really value teaching all that much. I mean, most of what goes on is lectures. I had a handful of professors who I think of as actual teachers, like actually engaged with the student. Um, most of them were engaging in some type of performance. And, you know, teaching at CUNY is pretty good. I mean, we just have a massive range of preparedness on part of our students. So, you know, no Harvard professor is walking into a classroom with a student who really is struggling to read and write. And I will teach some students who really have basic skills issues in the same class as a student who got 1,400 on their SATs and clearly can go to a top law school. I mean, that's a real trick as an educator to try to, you know, give them all a positive experience. But I think the answer to your question would be that it's not treatment. Yeah. I mean, if, look, you talk a lot in the book about the rankings and the kind of toxic effects of the rankings. But I mean, if we were going to do rankings, I think we would want to do rankings based on not the output metrics, but on the delta, right? Like, let's look at, you got raw materials coming in, you got finished goods going out and like, you know, how much value do you add? I mean, I, I teach a course on statistics and we talk about the U.S. News hospital rankings. And of course, what they're doing is they're looking at things like, you know, how many people died during surgery and, you know, five-year life expectancies. And so the easiest thing to do if you want to get good ratings is just only operate on healthy people, right? <laughs> well, so my best friend, I, I only have three friends left from college. My best friend is a transplant surgeon, okay? I almost opened the chapter where I talk about the rankings with him discussing the exact phenomenon that you just described, which is he said, we select who we admit in part because our five-year survival rate is affected by this, right? And so, you know, you've identified the key problem with the U.S. news rankings, which is that all of the things that they're valuing, and this obviously goes with respect to their graduate schools and even, you know, professional institutions that they're evaluating are really proxies for wealth. So if I let in a bunch of rich, healthy people and I do surgery on them, well, no surprise, they're going to do much better than the poor people who we give, you know, heart surgery, but can't afford to drive to their physical therapy or whatever, eat a healthy diet. Um, and you're right. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about rankings, but they make no effort whatsoever to measure what's actually going on in the classroom. Everything that they're measuring is a proxy for wealth. Mm -hmm. Well, it's wealth of the institution, of course, you know, how much they spend on each student. But it's also indirectly a metric of the wealth of the students, right, that enroll in the institution. 
So now you talk about all the different admission criteria that are used to allocate these spots. And almost every single admission criteria correlates to some degree with wealth. Now, the essay, you talk about Conant and Harvard and the move towards, you know, what are considered kind of more objective (laughs) metrics, right? Like standardized tests. And there's big debate, I know, at a bunch of universities, including mine here at UC Berkeley, about, you know, the validity of these standardized tests. And it seems like, I mean, the motivation was to open up more spots for people that didn't go to the usual schools that are coming from places that are unfamiliar to the admissions personnel. And so if that was intended to open up the doors, you know, why hasn't it? And it seems like every other attempt to try to introduce new criteria like, you know, extracurriculars and, and athletics. I mean, these also just seem to be, you know, creating wealthier students, right? So first of all, why are all the different admission criteria, do you think it's unintentional or do you think it's intentional? Well, you know, first of all, like what you said is just, just a validated it's historical accuracy. I mean, I think the SAT in, in historical context was democratizing. It was an effort to, you know, I, I, I tell the story in the book, I kind of look back and I was a Harvard National Scholar, which carried no no money, no financial aid, which I think is is funny. Even though like my dad had no money, so he he remortgaged our house and whatever. Um, but you know that that program was originally intended to identify talented Midwesterners. So the SAT was trying to you know find these diamonds in the rough, and um, you know I think that was good in context. It's clearly not good in modern context. I mean, the SAT is principally a way of underachieving white high school students outperforming, you know, in terms of admissions, where they would go if they were just, if we just did admissions on the basis of high school average, Uh, which is, you know, ironic because high school average is a much better predictor of college success than the SAT is because I think high school average is a proxy for a lot of things that, you know, you would expect lead to a successful student goes to you know, showing up, work ethic, as opposed to just kind of law intelligence, which is relevant. And and of course, not the SAT isn't even really a measure of law intelligence since it's gamed. In terms of identifying the villain, I mean, I I do think you have lots of collective action problems here. Um, So that it it is hard um, to be uh, one of the heroes or heroines of my book is Catherine Bontill, Cappy, who... um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in a podcast comparing Vassar and Bowdoin, you know, did a lot of investment to really increase the number of socioeconomically disadvantaged students that were there. And, you know, as Gladwell tells it, and Vassar has really bad food. Of course, that's a trade-off, I think, makes perfect sense. And there's been some retrenchment to Vassar since Cappy left. And it's, you know, in part, it's hard. They suffer in lots of ways. It's expensive to maintain those students and they suffer in the rankings. And, um, you know, I think another dynamic is you get these these pockets of alumni who have interests, right? Interests in the lacrosse team or the chorus or, but also interest in the perceived standing of the degree because what they've really bought is that signal, right? And they want the signal of degree, the degree to maintain its value. So there are a lot of, you know, it's a very, very tough problem. It's hard to, uh, I'm sure you'll ask me about this. It's, it's hard to see the way forward without some government action, which could be as minimal as allowing sort of a limited antitrust violation for 
these students to make some share pledges about like, you know, minimal number of Pell Grant recipients or something like that? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of universities would say that they have moved towards need blind admission. And so financial obstacles should no longer be a reason for someone to refuse to enroll in one of these top universities. And so, you know, why hasn't the move towards need blind admissions led to a higher representation of lower income people in these schools? So need, need blind admissions is, is on its face a, a lie. It's a misrepresentation. No college is admitting students without reference to their ability to pay. In fact, every student is making an election at the outset about whether they have, you know, they're going to apply for financial aid or not. What a college means, I mean, it wouldn't be a pithy name, is we won't specifically deny you because of your inability to pay, which is great. And, you know, it's vaguely analogous to, uh, you know, Brown. Okay, it's no longer legal to uh, exclude uh, people of color from our schools. But then 20 years later, you basically still had segregated schools in the South. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's a gross misnomer. Right. But I mean, the, there are financial aid packages, right, that are available for people of lower income. You know, a lot of the universities have pledged. Stanford has sort of said publicly that if your family makes less than a certain amount of income, then you don't have to pay any tuition. You don't have to pay any room and board. You know, everything's covered. So you would think that would just create this massive sort of suctioning effect where all of these top students from all over the country would, you know, uh, apply to Stanford. So, you know, why isn't that happening? I mean, I, you know, I opened the book kind of with a story of me at dinner with a friend of mine and he makes a similar argument. And, you know, first of all, the, the financial aid pledge begs the question of how many students are you going to let in who meet what under your threshold is. So like when I have this dinner with my friend, I think Harvard's financial aid initiative was triggered under $65,000 a year, which was over the national median income at the time. And there were nowhere near half of Harvard students who came from families making $65,000 or less. And the same is true now. That's great. <laughs> I mean, now is, is that because they don't get in or is there a deeper issue around, you know, awareness and, you know, familiarity with the process and so forth? I mean, do Harvard and Stanford have enough socioeconomically disadvantaged students applying who get over, say, some minimal SAT threshold? 1300, 1350, whatever you want to say, 32 on the ACT, that they could fill a class with those with super smart socioeconomically disadvantaged students. Of course, I mean, I, I quote in the book, uh, a Yale admissions director, it's probably like 15 years ago, asked what percentage of applicants to Yale could do the work at Yale? And he said, 99%. And of course, it's definition, it's, it's, it's obviously true since what the average GPA at Yale is 3.7. I mean, you know, getting a B plus in 2023 in an elite college is a mark of censure. Um, so these colleges are, except maybe in the hard sciences, which I think is a little bit of a different case. And I think the harder question you'd have to ask those, those schools is, okay, you know, how many slots are you reserving for students who are below that threshold? And, you know, the way I conceptualize college admissions is there are like these different buckets that are being filled. You know, you have the athletics bucket, which is, and I don't think people get this, it's huge. So like if you're at a division three college, like if you're in Middlebury or Amherst, a third of the students on the campus are a recruited athlete. 
right? And that's a big bucket. And you have the legacy bucket, you have the donor bucket, you have the children bucket, you know, children of staff and faculty. And so what you're having is kind of like a, you know, quote unquote, fair competition for like a third of the slots. And, you know, that's, that's why it's restricted. So the only way this is going to change is either they expand capacity without adding another Alpine skiing team or something like that, or they're going to have to diminish their commitment to some of those, reduce the size of some of those inequitable buckets. Now, look, I mean, I was very skeptical about the desirability of admitting athletes, right? As opposed to people who do well on tests and so forth. I mean, I've come around to the belief that, you know, having some athletic experience is probably a signal of something positive, you know, coachability or whatever. But I also think that if you, you know, worked in a restaurant in high school, that's just as good. Right? I mean, that's also a signal. And yet, you know, when I look at, I talk to my students, I, you know, very few of them have work experience like that. I mean, I had plenty of that. And work. just to be clear, all of my students, yeah, all of them work. All of them are working their way through college. And I think that is probably just as good of a signal as being, you know, a good team player on an athletic team or so forth. But we don't, they don't look at that. So that's not, you can't put the oh, I would argue, not only don't they look at it, I would argue that it's a mark of censure. And I, I don't know if you've read, Emmy Nietfeld has a biography, an auto memoir called Acceptance. It's a wonderful book and she has a very troubled childhood. Her mother is a hoarder, father leaves, she ends up in the foster care system and kind of at every juncture where she's interacting with the, you know, kind of the system, if kind of like, I mean, she's obviously brilliant. She ends up going to Harvard. They're just kind of telling her what good enough is. And she applies to Yale and doesn't get in. And she concludes there's a, a college consultant who's helping her pro bono that it's the narrative that she told. Um, so there's, there's only so much hardship that's tolerable to these institutions. And the narrative has to be Oh, yeah, and it all worked out well, but. But I mean, is it, is it that the wealthy students don't want to have these people around? I mean, is it because universities don't want to spend the money? I mean, they have an enormous amount of money that they could easily toss around to admit more people on scholarships and it wouldn't make a dent in the endowments. So I guess the thing I, I struggle with is I'm trying to figure like, you know, if you're trying to reverse engineer the objective function of the universities, Right. Like, what exactly is it that they're maximizing? Because it doesn't seem like they're maximizing what they say they're maximizing. And in particular, if you meet people who are admissions professionals, if you meet professors, if you, I mean, pretty much every single person at the university will say that they believe in less inequality, they believe in encouraging opportunity, that fostering merit and so forth. But then the actions seem to be inconsistent with this. So, how do we make sense of that? I mean, this is. University professors, the most left-leaning segment of society, and I, I, I think they would, you know, 90% of them would sign on to the goals you just articulated, and yet these institutions are, you know, conservative in the traditional sense of the word. They're reinforcing of the status quo, and they're very resistant to change. I think you have some complicated dynamics. I do think we need to differentiate at the outset between colleges that have FU money and colleges that don't. So like, you know, I think when you're talking about a college with an endowment of say $500 million, which obviously would be a lot of money to me, but to an institution, I don't know that that gives them unlimited possibilities, right? 
And so those colleges are basically giving their admissions department a budget. We need X number of full paying students and you could use that to do a little bit of financial aid. Now, you know, when you're talking about a college that has $50 billion in money at night, you know, I understand they're all going to say, I don't understand anything about endowments, but I understand that they could increase the draw on their endowments, say from four and a half percent a year to 5%, and they would still be making a lot of money and they'd still cross a trillion dollars, you know, sometime around 2100. Well, I mean, you can run a college for free on that half a percent of uh, earnings. So it's just an institutional commitment. And, you know, the commitment either has to be, we're going to increase capacity or we're going to eliminate or curtail some of these inequitable pathways that some of our alumni have a deep investment in. But, you know, nobody's shown a will to do that. Well, now you talk a bit about how a lot of these universities are trying to satisfy their donors, right? Many of whom are alums. And so they're effectively selling slots, right? To children of donors and alums. But I mean, if you were interested in, in maximizing the size of your endowment, or if you're interested in maximizing the number of future big donors, it would seem that you would want to invest in, in high potential, right? I mean, if you look at someone like, you know, Michael Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg turned out to be a really, really good investment by John Hopkins, right? But he, he did not come from a very wealthy family, right? I don't understand why they don't, you know, I mean, I've always had MIT in my head as kind of the best of the worst, right? MIT is kind of on the on the core for Chetty Friedman dynamic. They do about two and a half times as much upward mobility as Princeton. You know, is that ideal? No, but the world would be a better place if that were the floor instead of the ceiling. And, you know, MIT has never done legacy or donor preference. And, you know, they have a $25 billion endowment. And, um, you know, there's an admissions officer there who I quote extensively in the book. I really admire him. And he's like, you know, it's really easy for us to sell the idea that this is the place where we try to let in the people who did the most given what the capacities were available to them. But you're even saying something slightly different than that. It's not even kind of, you know, fundraising for a kind of quote unquote meritocratic institution or not a, you know, grossly inequitable institution. They're just admitting the people that they think have the best shot at succeeding, which is clearly not what's going on when you're letting in, you know, daddy gave uh, $20 million for the library. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of surprising that there aren't more top universities that follow that, that MIT model. I mean, that, that means that they must be under enormous pressure, right? And they have to rebuff that, that pressure. Or is it that, and I think you point this out, is that the people who graduated from MIT take pride in the fact that the admissions standards are so rigorous and objective. So, I mean, if everyone knows, this is, I mean, this is the economist in me who, you know, thinks that people are rational. Like if everybody knows that the admissions standards are so wiggly, then, you know, why do people continue to view the product as being such high quality, right? If we know that it's to some degree smoke and mirrors, you said in the book that the universities themselves inculcate in their students an illusory sense of merit, right? Does that become sort of self-reinforcing so that if you go to one of these institutions, you, you believe that these institutions are cranking out the best people. And so then when it comes time for you to recruit and hire, you recruit and hire the people who came from, from these institutions and so forth? Yeah. I mean, you know, 
the thing in the book that is kind of most important to me is, is that perpetuation of the meritocracy myth. I mean, you know, I'm always like, look, these colleges said, hey, we're not exactly profit maximizers. We're not like ExxonMobil, but we're like status maximizers. We're a race to get to a trillion dollars. And, you know, we try to let in some needy, meritorious students. But a lot of what we're doing is just kind of, you know, letting in the people that we have kind of institutional obligations to who are going to help us achieve that status maximization. Well, then you would say, okay, they're not do-gooders, but at least they're honest. Now, I wouldn't imagine that America would make the massive investment that it does in these institutions in the form of a tax exemption that Charlie Eaton, um, you see colleague of yours, estimates to be worth uh, $20 billion a year, then they're not do-gooders. And, you know, nothing so damaging. You know, there's a predisposition. People have a predisposition in favor of believing in meritocracy. Ironically, even disadvantaged people have that predisposition because I think it's it's just too hard to go through life believing that the deck is completely stacked against you. And, you know, so if these, at the freshman convocation, presidents got up and said, look, you've all worked hard, but, you know, similar to what you said, Greg, there are a lot of people who also worked really hard, aren't here today, and might have done a little bit better on the SAT if they had had the same economic opportunities that you've had. So let's temper our presence here with a heavy dose of humility. I would feel differently about it, but they tell them that they're the best and the brightest. And I think to what you say is once you know you have that degree, I don't see a ton of me's out there who are going around saying, yeah, I was just, you know, I worked pretty hard, but I was lucky. And I don't think I learned any more than anybody else did. And most of what I've learned, I've learned as an adult, you know, as a professor through study. Well, but look, I mean, we've seen this huge enthusiasm for, you know, DEI initiatives. There's been quite a bit around race as a criteria for admissions. And although the Supreme Court, you know, will likely make it more difficult for universities to use race as a criteria for admission, but it's hard to reconcile the degree to which people talk about, you know, diversity and the extent to which we we see a leveling of the entry playing field. How do we make sense of that? Is this all, I mean, I don't want to impugn anybody's motives, but is this in some way sort of window dressing for the... I'm happy to impugn. I mean, it, it's all performative nonsense. I mean, uh, we, we have some of these conversations at my college and, um, you know, I, I'm like, what our students need is they need to read well and write well and be able to do math and statistics. That's, that's what they need. And um, I jokingly refer to this in the book, I own it as uh, my own theorem, which is that affluent white liberals look just like conservatives when it comes to hoarding opportunity for their own kids. So, you know, you want to talk about something that will make a difference in human lives? Well, if you live in an affluent suburb, how about you open your door to uh, five kids per year from a community just across the border where they spend $6,000 less per student. There are hundreds of these examples of economically segregated borders. Very, very few programs that attempt to do this. METCO is a program in Massachusetts. It's had great results. And they basically, um, you know, will pay a district um, the cost of educating the student 
to bust the kid into there. But, oh man, you know, white liberals kick and scream if you talk about something that would even slightly diminish, um, you know, what they perceive to be their kid's chance of getting to college. Mm -hmm. Now, public universities have, some of them have shifted to a different admissions model, right? Where they will admit people based on their standing within their local institution. And so this would presumably control for the disparities in resources across all these different school districts. Is this a potential solution? I mean, do we have good evidence? I know Texas system has done this and a couple others. Is this a way of helping to reestablish the state systems as an avenue for opportunity? And is this something that the elite universities could potentially look into as an admission standard? For sure. I mean, these top class models, I mean, you know, Richard Kallenberg, who was the expert for uh, SFFA in its case against Harvard, but is, you know, uh, a longtime principled proponent of class-based affirmative action. You know, it's one of the steps that he looks to. The evidence in Texas is great. Um, um, so Texas adopted partially a top class rank model based on, in the Fisher case, it, it ultimately also ultimately wasn't ruled unconstitutional, but the model persisted. So I guess it depends a little bit the question that you ask. But if the question is, do we get more socioeconomically diverse students there? The answer is yes. They have a large measure of race diversity. It's a simple thing. I, mean, I always ask when I talk about the book, I'm like, okay, if, if Harvard, and Yale, and Stanford constructed their class by, say, doing the lottery among high school valedictorians and salutatorians in the United States, do you think they wouldn't have a super smart class? Of course they would, but it would be, you know, much more socioeconomically and racially diverse because it would reflect the diversity of America. And interestingly, and there's some evidence of this from Texas, you'd create some interesting incentives. So right now, you know, I obviously talk about this a lot in the book, basically the standard white life course, affluent white life course is you live in the city, then you have kids and you either send your kid to private schools or you move to an affluent suburbs and you're chasing resources and access to the narratives that these colleges choose to value. Well, in a top class model, you'd have more complicated incentives because you might think, oh, I want to make sure my kid gets to be salutatorian. So maybe I don't want to send him to Andover or Exeter. Maybe I actually want to move to this place. And I, you know, now I, all that money I spend on tutoring gets me more bang for the buck. That's virtuous. And that's where I feel like the causal chain here, where university is accepting responsibility. There's no ground up mechanism by which suburbs are going to open their doors. And you have a terrible, one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in American history, Milliken versus Bradley, which prohibits busing across urban suburban borders. But boy, if elite colleges sent these signals, it would create some interesting reshuffling in America. Yeah, I mean, we have what, you know, horizontal stratification of different socioeconomic groups, right? Where everybody congregates geographically. Then alternative would be sort of, you know, vertical stratification. I was a, a big fan of Baron Haussmann, right, in Paris, who built these apartment buildings with the different levels having different ceiling heights. And, you know, they had no elevators. So they had the, the wealthy people on the downstairs and then the, you know, poor people on the upstairs. And that meant it was very difficult for the wealthy people to avoid exposure to the poor people and vice versa. 
And so, you know, that what you're describing, it could drive a reshuffling of kind of where people live. The surprising thing for me is you'd think professors would be strong supporters of this, right? I mean, as a professor, you know, I, I want high quality students, right? I don't want rich students. I want high quality students. And I think most professors, if you ask them, you know, would you rather have a group of rich students or a group of, you know, high quality students, they would all say, you know, we want the high quality students. And if it meant that you had some students who were coming from backgrounds where they had to struggle and they had to work and they had to take care of their families and so forth. I mean, I think most of us would say, bring it on. Like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. So, I mean, do professors, are they just sort of checked out? I mean, we've handed over the keys to admissions professionals for the most part, I think as faculty members, we just say, look, you admissions professionals, you figure it out. And they are in their own world and they hang out with themselves and they have their own norms that they follow. Do professors need to kind of claw this back or the admissions people, who are they responding? Are they responding to the alums? Are they responding to the status within that group of admissions professionals? Are they responding to the financial imperatives that are imposed on them by the senior administrators, right? Because it does seem like they have considerable amount of discretion when it comes to who they admit, one would think. Well, I mean, I do think it's correct that a professor should teach whoever is in front of them, right? I mean, you know, I'm just going to educate who's ever in my class. And I think there's some good attached to that. I mean, if I'm kind of drawing the chain here, I mean, you know, I think you're right. Obviously, professors are not most professors or few professors are actively engaged in the admissions process. I mean, in 30 years, I've never had any admissions person ever ask me, you know, are you satisfied with the students you're getting <laughs> or, you know, anything? I've never had any interactions whatsoever. And most of my colleagues have never had any interaction whatsoever with admissions people. Of course. So it's, you know, it's driven by professionals and that person is responsible to the president and the president is responsible to a governing board. And, you know, I talk about this in, in the book. Those boards are not diverse in any sense of the word. They're, they tend to be very old. They tend to be very white. And they're certainly not socioeconomically diverse. I mean, I joke that uh, the Harvard Corporation looks more like the management committee of Goldman Sachs than it does like, you know, a nonprofit. So there are some real barriers to change. You know, I, I also will say, I, I ask, I mean, I interviewed a lot of people for my book, 100 people or so. And when I would interview uh, professors at these colleges, I would say, what do you think about their own old school? And everybody would kind of make an exceptional argument. Oh, well, my college is doing the best we can, given the situation. Let me just say this prospectively. I'm, I'm very hopeful um, of getting a nonprofit off the ground imminently. Uh, it's tentatively titled Class Action. And um, professors do write me. I get lots of emails. And now I'm going to have tell them something that they can do. And our model is going to try to be grassroots advocacy. So what I've seen, a lot of schools will have a community of first-gen students, but it's, it's more like a mutual support network, how you navigate getting through this very unfamiliar or hostile space, as opposed to lobbying for change. And I think to this point, there are very few kind of institutional forces that are trying to push these uh, universities in, you know, what I would say is the right direction. So there's kind of like some infrastructure capacity building that has to happen for a while. 
so that somebody can counter, you know, the wealthy donor. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about resources and, you know, wealthy donors, I mean, they at least will publicly say that they're interested in, you know, doing good and, and so forth, but they continue to donate primarily to the elite universities, right? You know, when you donate a billion dollars to Harvard, you know, you're not really moving the needle all that much. I, mean, I remember, um, you know, looking at some of the dorms in Princeton and, and Yale, I mean, each dorm room is a million bucks, right? I mean, the amount of Delta you would get by giving that money to a, another university that caters more to a lower income group would be presumably much greater. So I know students are pursuing prestige. Recruiters are pursuing prestige. Donors seem to be pursuing prestige. But, you know, do donors, do they just not have a good metric on the Delta? I mean, we've seen the emergence of a lot of these organizations that attempt to evaluate nonprofits based on the impact that the nonprofits make. Do donors just lack that kind of information about, you know, how can you do the biggest benefit, right? Here's where your dollar is going to make the biggest difference. Do we need something like a, an alternative to the U.S. news rankings, which would be sort of a donor ranking system so that you could know where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck? And I guess a corollary to that is states have cut funding for public universities, right? California, I mean, the amount that every student gets at University of California from the state is dwindled down to very little compared to what it was, say, in the 1950s and 60s as a percentage of your total cost. If the states are not going to step in and do this, do we need more donors to the public universities? And when they look at the ROI on the public university, are, are they concerned that if they donate money to the public university, that just means that the state's going to you know, contribute less? So how do we measure the delta or the impact that donors are making on these different institutions? Well, I mean, uh, one of my classmates just gave Harvard $300 million, Ken Griffin. I mean, and so $300 million, I did kind of a back of the envelope calculation. So if just at a 5% return, basically would have meant free college for a quarter of our undergraduates for our entire graduate student population, right? I mean, it's game-changing. What would it be at Harvard? You know, so to let in 10 or 20 more socioeconomically disadvantaged students per year. I'm mostly just going to agree with what you said. Darren Walker from the Ford Foundations calls it the difference between being generous and just. You know, it's very generous to give that money to Harvard like it is to build, you know, a new concert hall for the New York Philharmonic. But I mean, that's not just. And, and actually, in some sense, they're, they're exacerbating these disparities because, you know, if I lock in the idea that part of what you get when you go to Princeton is this great dorm room and access to funded study abroad opportunities, and, you know, we have all of these kind of redundant fail saves to make sure that you never do poorly. I mean, as we increase the spending per student, we make it more expensive to let in socioeconomically disadvantaged students. I mean, this disparity is staggering. Yale spends something like 10 to 15 times more per student than what we do at CUNY. CUNY, we spend about $18,000 per student per year. That's nothing. So I don't have a simple answer for you on how we change 
donors sort of, I don't know what they're responding to. I see that there's lots of brand loyalty. I mean, heaven for Fins that uh, Larry Bacow say to Ken Griffin, hey, give your money to Bunker Hill Community College. We'll hold it in trust for Bunker Hill Community College so the state can never touch it. And what we'll do is we'll set up a pipeline program. So we take their 10 top graduates and we bring them in as transfer students to Harvard and give them a free ride. Wow, that would be a great. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, why don't they adopt? I mean, the places like UC Berkeley, I mean, we have the state community colleges as sort of, you know, feeder schools, right? So if you get your associate's degree and you're in the top of your class, then you get automatic admission to Berkeley, right? And some of those, you know, when I was teaching undergraduates, they were often the best students in the class, right? And so you you could imagine that Stanford or Harvard sort of uh, adopting a bunch of schools, right? And creating that feeder network. And that would probably not only create a huge benefit for those students, but it would presumably create a huge benefit for the colleges. I mean, where's the harm? I mean, you're admitting people that you know, right? You have much better information and evidence of their potential, right? When they're coming out of high school, they're pretty raw. You don't really know, you know, <laughs> what they're capable of. But here, after, say, a couple of years of actual college experience, then, you know, you would, you would have more evidence of their competence and capability to succeed. I mean, I, you're so rusty. It would be like a D-League, right? You know, the NBA has the D-League and the you know, the farm system, the major league baseball has a farm system. It's basically a perfect predictor. Success, you know, success in community college is a near perfect predictor for all of the obvious reasons. I mean, you demonstrated your ability to do college, but those partnerships are like, just think about like all of the virtuous signals that it would send. You know, if you said to a neighboring community college, hey, we want to work with you, you know, we're letting in 10 of your students a year. So we have an investment that they're really well prepared. Let's collaborate on curriculum and let's share some resources. There's no one size fits all solution. Obviously, none of these things, even in their totality, would end, you know, inequity in America. But there are so many obvious common sense, minimally costly steps that these colleges could take. And all it takes is, you know, a commitment to saying, hey, we really want to dramatically increase the socioeconomic diversity of our student body. We want to create more equitable pathways of access. Seems like a no-brainer to me. Let's just say, these things are going to happen. You know, like, this is not a sustainable status. It's like segregation or slavery. I mean, it's just so unjust. The question is, whether it's going to take 50 years or whether it can happen a little more quickly. Well, I mean, do you think the universities need to worry about the kind of anti-elitist backlash? I mean, certainly Trump was tapping into a bit of this. I mean, as long as most of the people in positions of power are coming from these institutions, then it's not something that they do need to worry about. But at least at the popular level, there is this sort of anti-elitist strain is that something that the universities have to worry about? I mean, are they, would they ever be in danger of losing their tax-exempt status or having their endowments taxed or, or anything like that? Well, I'm going to say yes in two different senses, right? I mean, they need to worry about it, as you said at the end. There's going to be legislative reform. I mean, it, it, it's, not, it's not a sustainable, this situation is not sustainable. And the question is whether the challenge is going to come from the right or the left. So Trump imposed uh, whatever 1.6% excise tax on colleges 
you know, with the largest endowments. And that money just disappeared into the general fund. I mean, it didn't do anything to improve uh, access to these institutions. So it would make a lot more sense for legislative reform to come from the left and say to the colleges that these are conditioned, your nonprofit status is conditioned on you meeting these metrics of access. So um, I partnered with a, a legislator in Massachusetts. We've introduced a bill and it has some bipartisan support, which imposes a public service fee on colleges with endowments over a billion dollars that practice legacy donor preference or binding early decision, which is devastating to um, socioeconomically disadvantaged students. And we redirect that public for service fee to community colleges. So we're creating, you know, if you want to continue this inequitable pathway, well, you're going to pay. We're going to use that money to try to level the playing field a little bit. The second sense in which I think the answer to your question is yes, is that, you know, diversification of access to the elite has, I think, existential consequences for day, for democracy. I mean, you know, of the many pathways that Trump exploited on his pathway to the presidency, none were, um, you know, so effective. <laughs> he took this page out of Adolf Hitler's playbook as antipathy for the elites. And I think nothing he's done to democracy has been so damaging as undermining people's confidence in the press. And, you know, I, I say this all the time, so I don't agree with everything that I read in the Times. I understand that journalists occasionally make mistakes, but I don't disbelieve the Times because I have confidence in journalistic method, as I do in scientific method, by the way, because I know three of the people on the Times masthead because I went to college with them. So I know that they're people of integrity, even if they sometimes make mistakes. Well, if I never met anybody and I went to one of these colleges or could vouch in that way, and I had no prospect of my kid ever going to one of these institutions, why should I have a similar confidence in these foundational institutions of democracy? Yeah, and it's, we see at the say, level of the Supreme Court where you know, eight of the nine justices went to Harvard or to Yale, and I think also in you know, cabinets and other elite positions. Evan, thank you so much for joining me. This is really an interesting book. It's called Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us check it out. And also, of course, your work on death penalty and justice, a book called Wild Justice and others. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.